and thank you for joining us for another episode of Hope for Healthcare with Dr. Katie Cole in partnership with ICD Healthcare Network. Dr. Katie Cole is a holistic physician, organizational well-being consultant, and change agent, working with industry leaders and proven strategies to heal our national healthcare system and our culture of medicine. Stay tuned to hear today's speaker. Welcome everyone to Hope for Healthcare. This is a podcast in which we interview expert leaders around the country on best practices for healing our national healthcare system and culture of medicine. Today, I want to extend a very warm welcome to my colleague, Dr. Tom Mayer. Dr. Mayer is the medical director for their for the NFL Players Association, executive vice president of leadership for Logix Health, founder of Best Practices Inc., speaker for Executive Speakers Bureau clinical professor of emergency medicine at George Washington University and senior lecturing fellow at Duke University. He was named the 2018 winner of the James D. Mills Outstanding Contribution to Emergency Medicine Award, which is the highest honor of the American College of Emergency Physicians. He was recently nominated to the Pro Football Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio. USA named him one of the 100 most influential people in the NFL. Tom Peters, the internationally acclaimed leadership guru, referred to his work as, quote, gasworthy, unquote. Dr. Mayer has been the founder, CEO, and principal shareholder of physician leadership, staffing, and management and ambulance support companies with revenues exceeding $100 million, which were then sold with an average IRR in excess of 38%. Dr. Mayer was also named the ACEP, American College of Emergency Physicians, Outstanding Speaker of the Year, and has been awarded over-the-top award winner three times through ACEP. Battling Healthcare Burnout, his latest book, which I have here today, which we'll get into, won the ACHE, American College of Healthcare Executives, James Hamilton Award for the Best Healthcare Leadership Book in 2022, and Leadership for Smooth Patient Flow won the ACHE's James Hamilton Award for the Best Healthcare Leadership Book in 2008. Well, welcome, Tom. It is an absolute honor and privilege to have you on the podcast today. Oh, Katie, thanks for having me on. I admire your work. I love your podcast. I think they're so uh, bright, uplifting, helpful, and hopeful. So uh, honored to be a part of it. Well, thank you. I'm looking forward to our discussion today. And, you know, uh, Tom was was kind and generous enough to send me his books in the mail. So I had a chance to to review them. And we're going to go, you know, dive deeper into that throughout the discussion today. But um, starting off, I'm really curious, Tom, can you tell us a little bit about your own leadership journey throughout the years and why you believe so strongly and passionately in leadership development for everyone? Well, I think it started when I was really very young, and that is that um, I was a football player, a linebacker, um, fortunate to have been the captains of my team as, as I went along and at various uh, levels through high school and then in college. And I always had a, a really healthy disrespect for the status quo ante, for why things are the way they are, because so often, certainly in burnout, but uh, throughout my life, it's sort of been this constant ringing of the way we're working isn't working or isn't working well enough. So how do we do it better? Uh, coach tells me we're going to run this defense. And the question is, well, why? Why not this? Well, you know, how do we adapt? And and uh, that becomes an important issue. So it's been a, a litany that's not on the back burner, but 
on the front burner, but boiling constantly for me throughout my life. And I, I came to that at every step that I went through. That's why I founded a group called Best Practices. Uh, Tom Peters, you kindly mentioned him, uh, calls me up and says, Mayor, you got a lot of nerve. You know, you call your company Best Practices, you better deliver. And, and that's true. But the fact is we all deliver all day, every day in what we do. We're leaders in what we do. As, as you know, from our previous conversations, the um, I think the term future leader is demonic, satanic, uh, absolutely demeaning, you know, as if someone was not worthy now, but might someday become worthy. I am a leader, but you're not yet there. Um, that just drives me to distraction. We're all leaders. We're all leading our lives, leading our families, leading, leading our, in our case, our patients and, and all the people we interact with, the team. So it's been a, a constant theme for, for a while. Now, some people, some of your listeners go, well, that sounds like an obsession to me. Um, but as you know, the old saying is, you know, just because it's OC doesn't mean it's a D. Mm -hmm. um, just because it's obsessive compulsive doesn't mean it's a uh uh, disorder. Uh, but I, I think that's where it sort of arose. Mm -hmm. Well, and, you know, Tom, I really like your concept in your books about, you know, the fact you bring up many times that everyone is a leader. It doesn't matter what position you play, what role you play in your life. And even in healthcare today, it doesn't matter what role you play, you're still a leader. And you have the opportunity to not only change how, your perspective on your situation, but you have the opportunity to impact your team as well. It's sort of a domino effect. So I'm curious, you know, in your book, Battling Healthcare Burnout, and for all of you, I'll have all this information on uh, Dr. Mayer's web bio webpage on the website. Um, in this book, you talk a lot about using our passion to burn in instead of burn out, focusing on both organizational and personal resilience. And I'm curious, can you tell us a little bit more about those concepts and how working on both at the same time can really, I think, have the biggest impact on reversing burnout? Yeah, they, when my beautiful and brilliant wife, Maureen, and I had three uh, sons, uh, now young men, and when they were younger, I used to take them to school every day I was in town. And when I dropped them off at school, I said precisely the same thing to them every day as I dropped them off at school, which is one more step in the journey of discovering where your deep joy intersects the world's deep needs. I swear I said this to these guys. They prefer to take the bus, as you might guess. I mean, no one wants to hear that from their dad. You might tolerate it from your mom. But, but the point to me has been figure out, the, don't start with the world's deep needs. They're infinite. They're, there's no way to measure them. And, and we can't be all things to all people. We have to start with our deep joy. What burns within us? What is our work to do? You can call it North Star. You can call it all kinds of different things. But to me, it's deep joy. And I think what's happened uh, in burnout is that we've had a passion disconnect. I often show a picture of a, a young doctor, female doctor, literally jumping for joy. And the question that I ask the audience is, is that you going into work or going home? And everyone laughs, but they get it because they get it. They see that epiphany that, gosh, I if I'm really connected to my deep joy and what better deep joy than healthcare, than than caring for others? helping make their lives a little bit better, their burden a little bit lighter, 
their lives a little bit longer. Um, I don't use the term health span. I use the term joy span. And that's kind of what we're all doing. So when that passion disconnect occurs, we've got to reconnect it. We've got to help understand that, you know, the future is now. Don't, you know, aspire to be a leader. Embrace the fact that you are a leader and then inspire other people to be a leader as well. And that's as simple as the housekeeping people that we work with. I'm staying in a hotel in Philadelphia for a meeting right now. And, you know, if I don't know the names of the room clerk, if I don't know the names of the people that serve me in a restaurant, you know, I'm um, abdicating my leader role of, of knowing them, of looking at them. And the same goes uh, particularly with us in healthcare. Think about this. We talk about a group of people, lab, radiology, um, environmental services, or housekeeping. And if you ask people in healthcare, they are called blank services. Fill in the blank. And every audience is going to tell you ancillary services. Mm -hmm. Ancillary. Well, oh, I, I was a theology major in addition to being a football player, if that's inconceivable, but... I learned that all language has meaning and all behavior has meaning as well. And the language of ancillary derives from the Latin term anquila, which means female slave. Yeah. That's what we're calling these people. Are you kidding me? How are they supposed to feel? So one of the points I always make is call them what they are, call them essential services, ban the term ancillary from healthcare and from life for that matter. Um, so, you know, it all comes together around that sense of embracing being a leader and leading what they do on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. And I think sometimes we forget about those things because we're so caught up in the moment when we're traveling. And, and like you said, just even knowing the names of people serving you in a restaurant or helping you check in can make a big difference, you know, because we're all humans and we're all in this together. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, all those folks are uh, are trying to help. Uh, there's a quote attributed to Philo of Alexandria, probably uh, came from Reverend McLaren, um, but it's be kind because everyone's fighting a great battle and they are. And, and if somehow by a smile, a kind word, you can lift them up even slightly, um, number one, it helps them because they are fighting a great battle. And, and over and over again, I've had people come back to me after uh, having talked with them years, days, months uh, before and say, you know, that really made my day better. It not only made their day better, made my day better. And I personally think it's, you know, as you know, I think all of us are involved, like my NFL athletes, in a cycle of performance, rest, and recovery. Performance, rest, and recovery. And part of that recovery can just be that, being kind uh, to other folks with a kind word. Um, so taking the time to do that. And I hear this all the time. I don't have time for that. Well, sure you do. Only takes 10 seconds, 20 seconds, whatever. Yes, exactly. I think complimenting people throughout the day is very important, especially on the front line, because, you know, we hear so much negative feedback or complaints from patients and staff on the flow of the day that really taking time out to compliment each other can change the tone of the entire day. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I think that particularly as physicians and, and your audience is across healthcare, and, uh, you know, I have enjoyed the podcast in particular you've done with nurses. Um, 
huge issue of, of nursing staffing that we're facing right now. But as, a, as an emergency physician, that's what I do. If I'm in the middle of a case and I say to the patient, you know, Jeannie, your nurse just picked up something that I didn't pick up. That was really helpful. And so praising Jeannie makes her feel even more a part of the team, even more a leader, but also validates what she does. And uh, and I, I think those little touches, What most of life, I think, are disciplines. Of course, a linebacker is going to tell you that, you know, hat in hands, hat in hands. That's how you play the position, head on a swivel, all those kinds of things. But those little pieces of discipline, sitting down when you go into a patient's room instead of standing up, uh, validating and, and pulling the patient, uh, I'm sorry, the nurse in as, a, as not a, only a part of the team, but an important part of the team. I think we need to make our patients part of the team. We don't do that very well in healthcare now. I think we got a problem with patient burnout as well. The same things that Christina, and I loved your podcast with her. She's a good friend. I emailed with her just this week. But the emotional exhaustion, the cynicism, the loss of meeting at work, uh, our, our patients are suffering the same thing because they see the sign that says patient first. And they say, well, I guess it's not me first because, you know, we put them through this maze. It doesn't seem like the system is designed around the patient. So I'm working on a piece right now talking about patient burnout and how we deal with that. I think that's an important concept. I think everyone is really honestly burned out in healthcare. And the other thing that we're not talking about is executive leader burnout in healthcare as well. I think Whit Kiefer did a, a survey this past year, it showed almost a 74% rate of healthcare leader burnout. Um, so yeah, Kate Chanafelt and I did a piece in uh, a second one coming up in Journal of Healthcare Management. Uh, we thought, I thought it was important to survey the ACHE members. So we did it through ACHE, and indeed you find a, an interesting phenomenon, which is that essentially the closer you are to the patient, the more burned out you are, and the further away you are from the patient, the less burned out you are. So it's the proximity, and, and the exception to that is people that really have overall um overall impacts, the CEOs, COOs, CNOs, CMOs. But the people who have the lowest level of burnout, at least in our study, were people like CFOs who don't have nearly as much patient um, care. And, and frankly, I encourage everybody to round on patients, even if you're the CFO. I'm giving a speech uh, Friday uh, to the Healthcare Financial Management Group in, in upstate New York. I mean, they're they're not ancillary services. They're essential services. So pulling them in, I think, becomes important. Um, one, of, you know, one of the concepts that, that you talked about in your book that I really liked was maybe reframing resilience in the form of adaptive capacity. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because, you know, in it in itself, like the term resilience is actually overused and I think can people can take it personally whether you're a leader or a physician or nurse in healthcare. Right so as you know the way I've defined burnout and, and honestly the reason I wrote the book was because the definitions of burnout as good as they are were a book long that chapter long even a paragraph uh, long um, you know I'm an emergency physician so I have AD I'm sorry what were we talking about um, sorry that was a joke that was a joke <laughs> but my point is that I, I, I think definitions drive solutions so that by very defining a term clinically or, or, or otherwise, you're able to solve the problem. 
And so to me, it's a simple ratio of job stressors, and Lord knows job stressors have gone up lately, EHR uh, pandemic, but they were going up anyway. And that's divided by resiliency, but I prefer to call that adaptive capacity. So if you want to fix burnout, you know, you don't have to buy the book. You can just lower job stressors, increase adaptive capacity, or preferably both. And of course, we line out a, a series of ways to do that. The problem is when, when you or I talk to somebody, and, and if we were to say, well, the issue with burnout is resiliency. Now, we didn't say this, but what the person hears is, you tell I'm the problem. I'm the problem. You know, we have Wendy Dean and Simon Talbot talking about moral injury and, and the whole issue there. You've got a broken system of broken processes, and you're asking me to work and do more with less, and I'm the problem. So, again, that's not what you and I said, and I know that's not what you and I think. But people are kind of primed, particularly in healthcare, but I found throughout life to, to say, don't don't tell me I'm not resilient enough. Because, for example, emergency physicians uh, using the Connor Davidson scale are the highest in resiliency, but they're also the highest in burnout because of the job stressors that go with that. I got that concept because it reminded me when I was I started when I was a freshman uh, linebacker, which was unusual. The, the day before the game, we did our walkthrough. And, and the defensive coordinator said, you know, Mayor, my linebackers are agile, mobile, and hostile. Mm -hmm. And I said, oh, coach, that's me. I'm agile, mobile, and hostile. But I'm the middle linebacker. I'm the mic. I got to read and react. I got to head my head on a swivel. I got to adapt, adapt, adapt. And he thought for a second and said, my linebackers are agile, mobile, hostile, and adaptile. <laughs> and I think that's what we have to be. We have to be adaptile to deal with the circumstances. But we we also have to understand is you know we can't just and and uh, Linda Aiken, the great Linda Aiken at Penn, um, did a had a, a study in JAMA. You probably saw. If you didn't, I'll send you the link. In essence, saying that when you look at at burnout across doctors, nurses, all all through healthcare, they don't want. Uh, in general, they don't want resiliency training. They don't want code lavenders. They don't want somebody to come down and massage their feet. They want you to fix the system, fix the broken processes, and that will lower their job stressors. Well, on that note, Tom, what are some of your top strategies that you recommend organizations adopt for improving engagement and um, reversing burnout? What are some yeah, as you know, I, I finished a book called Leadership is Worthless, but Leading is Priceless. And thank you for, for reading through that um, and giving me your comments. But the point is, leadership is a noun. It's just something that you say. And far too often in organizations, healthcare in particular, but organizations writ large, you know, it's the words on the walls. Well, I don't care about the words on the walls as much as I care about the happenings in the halls because leading is a verb and a verb in the active voice. As Aristotle said, we are what we repeatedly do. Excellence is not a virtue, but a habit. Let's put that in action in our organizations and understand that everyone at every level is a leader. So don't aspire to be a leader, embrace the fact that you are and inspire others. And then three things, think in a radically different way about leading. It's not in the future, future leader, it's now today, every day. When you swing out of bed in the morning, 
you know, how am I going to lead today? Not just lead at work, but lead my kids, lead my family, lead the people I work with and the whole team. Two is to, to act on those thoughts within a week. I think if uh, folks, if folks hear your wonderful podcast and they don't act on it within a week, they're probably not going to act on it. Not because of your podcast, but because if we don't act on something within a week, we're probably not going to do it at all. And then the third is to innovate because the way we're working isn't working. We have to figure out new ways to do it. And innovation doesn't occur at the speed of intelligence, at creativity, genius. It occurs at the speed of trust. Because we have to remember what Beckett said, Samuel Beckett, the playwright, try, fail, try again, fail again, fail better. So if you can't fail, you can't innovate and have the courage and the creativity. I think those steps get go a long way towards as organizationally helping people understand you know, don't don't try to say, well, I'll be a leader when I get to the C-suite. You're a leader no matter what you do and, and embrace that and take great pride in that. So I think those are the things that are really foundation starting points. Um, you talk a lot about that the speed of innovation happens at the speed of trust. Can you give us like an example of that and why that is such a key foundational principle in order for innovation to occur? Yeah, I go on site. I'm not primarily in the consulting business, but I go on site when when friends or particular organizations ask me to, and they want me to talk about innovation, spend a day, two days, whatever it might be. And, and I say, well, you know, in preparation, let me know what your innovations have been uh, up until now. Let me know the culture in which you try to frame that. Um, I always tell them, I'll tell you what your culture is once I get on site and see how your people interact. That's the real culture relating back to what I said. But I also ask them, what's your success rate in innovation? And it's stunning to me how many times they'll say 90%, 92%, 93.4%. My answer is, you know, folks, you're not innovating. If you're succeeding that much, you're just adopting best practices a little earlier than the people down the street, than the guy around the block. Innovation means failure. The ability to come up with crazy ideas, to test those, to do it as a team, they're not with you on the takeoff. They won't be with you on the landing. So the whole team has to do that. That's not going to come from the C-suite. That's going to come from the we-suite, the people who actually do the work. And then learn from those failures. Uh, my friend Tom Peters always says, you know, uh, celebrate uh, uh, wonderful failures, but punish mediocre successes. And that happens too often in life. People are afraid to get out in front and try something that's going to fail uh, understanding that let's learn from the failure. I think we have to make failure our fuel. We truly have to make it our fuel that guides our leading and learn from it. That's probably my both my football and NFL background because that's what my player, my players spend three to seven times more time in the film room than they do either on the practice field or in a game. And why are they doing that? They're making failure their fuel. How do they get better and lead better? You know, Tom, can you, I'm just curious, have you, is there something that you've done in the past that you consider to be a failure, but it really was a game changer for you in terms of your leadership, how you um, choose to show up as a servant leader? Can you give us an example of what that was, that process was like for you? Well, there, you know, that, that that's not a podcast. That's a, a week long seminar, uh, <laughs> my failures, that, that's for sure. But um, Just one. <laughs> in my role in the NFLPA, you know, there have been times that 
that you know we get it gets heated at times uh we're a union representing 2500 players the nfl uh represents 32 owners 32 billionaires and, and um anytime i've let um the heat of the moment you know i represent the player patients but the voice of the player patient always has to come first so when a player gets injured i might say to the NFL, how could this happen? How could your people have done X, Y, and Z? But anytime I've I've done anything other than listen to the patient, player patient in my case, and focus on this is what they need, and therefore this is what I need to say and what I need to do, um, that becomes important because our players are all going to be future players. They're all no one's going to do this for a lifetime. Uh, you know, there's plenty of, of people. You know, Tom Brady and and, and others that have played long careers. But the fact of the matter is they're going to spend much more time in their career uh, after they, in some other career, uh, could be football related broadcasting. So learning constantly from, from, you know, you, I can't deviate from the, the player patient, what not is in their best interest, but what is their best interest It's not me as a doctor deciding what their best interest is. It's asking them, what matters to you as opposed to what's the matter with you. And you would have thought I would have learned that and, and, and known it, and, but you know, day to day, I always have to continuously remind myself what matters to you, the player patient is the most important thing by far. Mm. You know, that's a really good point. I'm glad you brought up Tom that you still have to remind yourself daily because I feel like as a leader, it's, a, you know, it's, it's kind of like part of reprogramming and rewiring. And I think our culture doesn't always support servant leadership. And so it's important to really show up and do that for yourself every day as, as part of your own. Yeah. You know, we share a view. Robert Greenleaf was one of the greatest uh, people of all time in terms of who coined the term servant leadership, that you have to be a servant first. And, you know, that's certainly part of, an, an embryonic thought that I developed when I said, talked about this leadership is worthless, but leading is priceless, uh, available for pre-order on Amazon. I, I'm always, my publisher always says to say that, but the focus being on serving first. And, and he, as he says, you, you know, the, the litmus test, the test is, you know, do the people being served become wiser, more thoughtful, more capable of leading themselves? That's the test as opposed to I am leader, I am the boss, you know, look at the plaque on my door, you know, look at the the people lined up to see me. You know, it's about how can I serve those people lined up to see me? See, you know, it, it, it's a common wisdom that, you know, uh, bosses or the boss is somebody who thinks he's the always the most important person in the room. Whereas leaders say, they always know that the most important per person in the room is everyone else in the room. Everyone else in the room is more important than them because their goal is to serve them over time. Mm -hmm. And that may be a subtle distinction, but I think it's an important. Absolutely. And I, uh, it sounds like, you know, that is that concept has really helped you as a leader, you know, that's part of why you've won awards. That's part of why you're asked to teach and, and be a mentor for many different organizations nationwide. 
And I think the idea, the concept of servant leadership, unfortunately, is just catching on in healthcare. <laughs> but I'm really grateful that it is. And it's time for us to look at, you know, what it takes to be a leader today uh, in healthcare and, and in any industry, really. It's changed so much over the past few years, like we talked about earlier. Yeah, you'll appreciate this, but I got an award and was, they, they asked me, you know, how did you do it? You know, some of the most important questions are the most simple and fundamental. And, and the answer is, I said, I had one talent and only one talent. And that is, I not only hired people who were better than I was, I hired people who were much better than I was. And they made me better and they made the whole team better. And um, I th it's sad, but I think too few people really do believe that, that, you know, hey, this this lady is lights out better than I am and I'm going to hire her so I can learn from her. Well, there is something to that, you know, in, um, in Napoleon Hill, they, he talks about how, you know, we're the average of the five people that we surround ourselves with on a daily basis. And when you think about that in your work that you do, you know, you want to have the brightest and the best around you, helping you make those decisions and, and create innovation for your organization. Yeah. I, you know, it, it's funny, but we, uh, probably should do a book together about the wisdom we got from our parents um, and, and the aphorisms that at the time it didn't make much sense. But, but I do recall my, my dad telling me when I was very young, you know, son, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. And um, I think a lot of the bosses think they're, you know, the smartest person in the room and delight in that instead of thinking wrong room. That's that's a very good point, Tom. And uh, I, you know, with everything that we've talked about today, what are some things that you that you believe are foundational to shift a culture, especially in healthcare today with an organization? So if they're just getting into the idea of health, you know, employee well-being, and you know, there's been a lot of uh, broken trust and community breakdown, you know, from the drivers of burnout, especially during the pandemic. You know what doesn't what does an organization need to do to start to begin to shift culture toward one of trust and inspiration? Yeah, great question, fundamental question. First of all, the culture is not the words on the walls. The culture is not calling a consultant, coming in, spending X Y Z dollars, and and coming up with this branding. And so I think people confuse culture, mission, vision, values, and branding of the organization. The culture is what happens in the hallways every day. So it's not the words on the walls, it's the happenings in the halls. Mm -hmm. Helping people understand that, that they every day will get up and when they walk in those doors, they will create a culture in, with each other, among the team, with the patients, with everyone we interact with through the course of a day, you create a culture. Um, because at the end of the day, you can look back, and that's one of the unique things of healthcare, and say, you know, what did I leave in there? And I'll circle back to that in a second. So having, frankly, the humility uh, of a leader that's an essential part, uh, as you know, one of the chapters in the book is, you know, uh, stop sucking up, start sucking down. You know, we've spent lifetime sucking up to the C-suite instead of sucking down to the people who do the real work. So I think that's critical to, to understand that difference between the words on the walls versus the happenings in the halls. Don't suck up, suck down. And that tapping into the creativity to say that, you know, a gentle word, be kind because everyone's fighting a great battle. 
is not only great advice to create a culture of kindness, a culture of integrity, and you're probably going to find those words in the mission, vision, and value of most healthcare systems, kindness, integrity, uh, quality, all those kinds of things. Um, but when you look at what is actually happening, that contrast sometimes is a little harder than it should see. And one of the great things about healthcare and why I love everyone who works in healthcare, everyone, is that at the end of the day, the night, whenever you, you finish your shift or whatever your day consists of, you get in your car and you put your key in the ignition and, and you smile and say to yourself, what did I leave in there? What was my legacy today? Because in, in legacy, you know, for, for certain people in, in businesses, that may be hard to measure. They think legacy, they think the property, the money, I leave my kids, my grandkids, the 529 college fund. We get to measure it one, think about this, one blank at a time. One what? Well, one patient at a time. So, and I would add to that one team member, one environmental services person that I thanked and said, hey, you know, you clean this place up so we have a great place to work. Mm -hmm. So uh, leave a legacy, leave a legacy. And that legacy is created every day. That culture is recreated every day by what you leave behind when you leave that facility. And, you know, I think if with these things, all of a sudden you're going to be jumping for joy going into work, not just going home from work. And we, you and I, and, and all the folks that you've had, all the people that will be at the seminar in November in New York, our goal is to unleash that leap for joy that's nascent within people to be able to say, my deep joy is taking care of these patients in this setting at this time on this day with this team of people. Mm -hmm. Oh, very well said. And I think that that's a huge part of culture change is not only helping and guiding folks to understand what their deep joy is, because a lot of people have, have like, like you said, have lost touch with what their actual deep joy is. It's been so long, you know, and getting in touch with that and then recreating that every day and having that be part of the culture too. Well, you know, they, um, there was a study that showed, I think Tate Shanafelt was part of that study that when doctors are doing, you know, what they enjoy doing at least 20% of the day, that's a huge buffer against burnout. And so I think that that is definitely part of culture change moving forward. Oh, there's no question. Tate, as you know, when I, he and I have written some stuff together and are working on a couple other projects. And, and I think that's um, that study is brilliant and pathetic. Brilliant because it shows deep joy, doesn't use that term. Um, and he and I have talked about that, but 20%, I mean, I, <laughs> I want a hundred percent. I mean, I'm, I'm greedy. I'm an emergency physician. I'm an athlete. I'm an NFL sports medicine doctor. You know, why not a hundred percent? You know, think of, think, have you ever thought about that? Only 20% is well, going to get me through the exactly. burnout, the job stressors, you know, let's, let's make it at least the majority. And, uh, and I think that's what our goal is. I know your goal is that. Absolutely. If not stated explicitly, you know, let's help people jump for joy going into work, jump for joy while they're at work, and then jump for joy when they're going home from work. Well, and that's a good point, too, because in leadership training and working on ourselves within, we become better leaders at home. We're happier. We have more joy. We lead our, lead our families and we lead our friends better. 
Um, and yeah, so I, think, I mean, you think about that, you know, could you conceive of a situation where someone would say, oh, he, he or she is just a great leader, lousy parent, you know, terrible spouse, you know, horrible friend. It's inconceivable. I mean, we are what we repeatedly do, as Aristotle said. So it, it, it goes through life. And, and just as, you know, hey, if I want to start as I want to be a good mom, good dad, good grandparent, good uh, husband, good wife, good friend, is that going to make you a better leader? Sure. So it's this wonderful synergistic circular way in which any one of those inflection points improves all inflection points. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I have another question. There's so many questions, Tom. I feel like we could probably talk for hours. I really want to understand more about your definition of strategic optimism that you talk about in your book. Sure. I, so to me, you were kind mentioning some of the businesses I've been in and the ROIs that, uh, or IRRs in this case, Important. but the return on investment, you know, whether we, we talk about wellness and wellness programs, that's one piece, but, you know, honestly, we have to hardwire flow, uh, revert to what Linda Aiken said, and, and I think you and I both believe is fix the systems and processes, then rub my feet you know, first fix the systems and processes and take my input when you do that. So when you think about arguing for those things, you have to make an ROI, return on investment, with the CFO, the C-suite, CNO, CMO, um, CEO, and COO, and the chair, board chair as well. Why not trade that same concept of, of ROI, increasing our return, on our greatest asset, which is optimism, hope? you know, you uh, hope for healthcare. I mean, you can't say it any better than that. That's optimism about what we all know is a broken healthcare system. First of all, I'm not sure it's a system, but that's another podcast at another time. And I'm happy to come back for that. But why not strategically? And the problem is, if, you, if you're optimistic about everything and every solution, oh, isn't that wonderful? When it's not wonderful, and it's not serving the patient as well as it could, then that's not strategic. So I think we have to be strategic about our optimism and say, okay, I'm not going to be cynical, you know, as a cardinal symptom of burnout, but I am going to be uh, uh, not cautious, but I'm going to be strategic about my investment of optimism in the best solutions that can happen. Yes, some of them will fail. We, have, we call audibles in the NFL all the time, every game. Uh, two nights ago, that, that occurred in the Monday night game numerous times. So be ready to call an audible, but be ready to invest your optimism strategically and, and use it to leverage for the good of the patient and for the good of the people who take care of the patient. I founded my companies on, on three rules. Rule number one, always do the right thing for the patient. Number two, always do the right thing for the people who take care of the patient. And rule number three, as you might guess, don't confuse rule number one and rule number two. And we do that all the time. So when you look at strategic optimism, you have to say, is this good for the patient? If it's not, don't do it. Don't invest your optimism in something that's not good for the patient, even if it's really good for the people who take care of the patient. And, and I think that way of thinking about things, maybe that's the next book, like I need another book. I, I do think that that is the next book because I was really fascinated. This sort of goes back to connecting the gears as well that you talk about within from a system approach for change. 
And it's important, you know, when you make a decision that just serves the patient, it may ignore aspects of the people taking care of the patient and what they need as well. So you have to look at the big picture whenever you make a decision as a leader. Uh, it's yeah, and, and, and thank you for mentioning, you know, healthcare is a complex adaptive system. I don't think we're looking at, we're looking at it as functional silos far too much as Phil Enser said in 1985. We need to see the connectivity. We need to see the big picture. You know, when, when um, quarterback comes up to the line, defense is showing cover two, two deep uh, safeties. And, and, but he's reading the signs and signals and realizes they're going to shift into cover one right at the snap. You know, that's seeing the system, seeing the whole playing field seeing how, okay, what are you working on? I'm working on patient safety. Well, yes, you are, but that you're also working on patient experience and clinical effectiveness and hardwiring flow, all those pieces. And so seeing the playing field and seeing the system nature, the great Peter, Peter Drucker, unfortunately, only a couple of years before he died, said the hospital is altogether the most complex system in American business and industry. Think about it. it is a system, but we need to see the systemness and the connectivity and the ways what we do uh, connect to others. Yes, absolutely. Uh, well, Tom, I know we've covered a lot in our conversation today, and I always, you know, want to check in and see if there's any last key messages that you want to leave with our audience. Well, the, the the best messages are always the simplest. As you know, I think we've made life far too complex. I think it's a lot simpler uh, than it is. Now, keep in mind, my wife always says that, Tom, your next book should be uh, titled Everyone's Entitled to My Opinion. Oh, so sure. I get that that's my opinion. Life is uh, too complex. But, but what I would say is to your entire audience is thank you. Thank you for what you do. You know? There's a term that that we use far too uh, frequently, uh, and and that is hero, hero. And so when I ask an audience, do you feel like a hero? What what cons consumes me is how softly, sadly, they'll shake their head. No, I don't feel like a hero, folks. If you're listening to this podcast, you are a hero. You make a difference in people's lives. You take care of those who can't take care of themselves with style, grace, dignity, and equanimity. You may say my system has me outmanned, outgunned. I only get 15 minutes with each patient, but you still do it with all those things. And if you ask your kids, go to your English teacher and, and ask, what do you call someone who does the best they can against impossible odds all the time? Sometimes they win, sometimes they lose, make failure your fuel. What do you call that person? They're going to come back with the same four-letter word, hero. So my message to your audience is the next time you go to bed, either right before or right after you turn off the light, I want you to smile and say to yourself, I'm a hero. I make a difference in people's lives because you do, and I am very proud to be one of you. Aw, Tom, that is the nicest message I think I've heard at the end of any of my podcasts. <laughs> Well, thank you. That's kind. Given I've listened to many of your podcasts. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, but no, that is, that is really one of the kindest statements. And I think, you know, we need to really work on supporting each other and supporting ourselves and especially ourselves. I think we're our own hardest critic. 
at the end of the day. And I know when I'm really hard on myself, it does impact my leadership skills. And I tend to be harder on the people around me. So I, yeah, I, I mean, if you can't forgive yourself, you can't forgive anyone. Exactly. I mean, that's just a fact. Again, a simple fact, but a fact. Mm -hmm. Thanks for having me on. It's been a real honor. Well, yeah, thank you, Tom. And thank you everyone for listening. And I'm going to make sure I have all of the books and links and everything. Oh, sorry. I, there you can see the book. Um, I'm going to make sure I have everything on Tom's bio page on the website. And we'll be posting on social media as well. Uh, if you have any questions, you feel free to reach out to Tom. I, is that okay if they email you or contact yeah, you? Yeah, please. I prefer that. Okay, great. And uh, thank you again, Tom, for being on the podcast today. Uh, I really appreciate your wisdom. You have decades of experience and knowledge, and we we really have a lot to learn from you. So today was just well, thank a you. iceberg. iceberg. <laughs> Thanks for having me on. All right. Thank you.